The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. On April 11, 2016, a 51-year-old woman went missing in Royston, England. It was initially reported that she had gone to the family's holiday home, but it was soon discovered she had never been there, and an investigation ensued. Three months later, her remains were uncovered in the septic tank of her own home. Her husband was immediately charged with her murder, which led investigators to a shocking revelation that she was not his only victim. This is the story of Helen Bailey. Before I begin, I want to thank you for listening to Femicide and for your continued support, especially last month when I ran rerun episodes to take a little break. Unfortunately, I'm going to be honest, I'm not doing great mentally right now and I just have a bit too much going on in my personal life with my dog and my work. So I've decided to take a hiatus for the summer. I've consistently posted here for the last two years, and it's just taken a toll on me this year. I'll be posting my scheduled posts for April, so today when you're listening, and on the 15th, but then I'll be taking a hiatus until the fall. It's just important for me to take care of myself, and while I love this podcast and sharing these important stories, I just need to step back for a bit. If anything changes, I'll post to my Instagram or do a follow-up here, but for now, this is a break and I'll be back. In the meantime, I've decided to make my Patreon episodes free during this time, so if you're looking for more content, you can subscribe there and there is a few episodes that I have posted. I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode if you're interested. Again, thank you so much for your understanding and patience, and I hope to be back soon with all new stories and a renewed mindset. I appreciate you all. Helen Elizabeth Bailey was born on August 22, 1964, to parents Eileen and George Bailey, and she had one brother named John. Her father worked as a public health inspector, and the family lived in Pontland, I believe that's how you say it, in the north of England, which is a small, quaint town in the English countryside with a population of just roughly 11,000 people. The town was too small to hold Helen, and as soon as she graduated high school, she set off for Thames Polytechnic in the big city of London. It's said she left home with, quote, a love of animals and what she described as spectacularly disastrous A-levels, end quote. A-levels are advanced level qualifications, basically test scores that help you to study further in university and such. Helen studied physiology and earned her degree before attempting to continue on for a PhD in, quote, something scientific, stating, quote, I rather fancied the idea of being called Dr. Bailey and whizzing around in a white coat, end quote. 
but she soon abandoned that plan and took some time away from school. It was at this time she got a job in media and soon fell in love with the work, opting not to return to school. In 1987, she began working for PSL, or Patrick Seinfeld Limited, which is a licensing firm in the UK. I believe it still is in business, but the office that Helen oversaw is apparently dissolved, according to my research. The company worked on licensing media in the UK and worked on projects like the movie E.T., as well as Rugrats, Nintendo, and Dirty Dancing, to name a few. She loved working at PSL and soon fell in love with one of its owners as well, John Sinfield. The two married in 1996 and by all accounts had a very happy marriage. They were together for 22 years and married for 15 when tragically in February of 2011, John drowned while the couple were swimming on vacation in Barbados. Obviously, this was a devastating loss for Helen, and she began writing a blog about her grief, titled Planet Grief, eventually turning it into a book in 2015 titled, quote, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis, end quote. During her time at PSL and throughout her marriage, Helen began writing. She loved writing short stories during her teenage years and even spent her allowance on the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is a book that gives advice to writers and artists each year. But it wasn't until her 20s she began writing seriously. First teaming up with illustrator Emma Thompson, she co-wrote the series Felicity Wishes, which are multiple books for children aged 7 to 9 years old. After that success, she began writing her own series, drawing on inspiration from her own high school experiences to create the Crazy World of Electra Brown series, which went on to have five books. She wrote other standalone teenage books as well, such as the Topaz series and other books for younger kids too. It's stated in all she had 22 published books, including short stories, picture books, and young adult fiction. After her husband's death, though, Helen found writing for younger people difficult and focused on the novel and blog surrounding her grief. It was during this time she met fellow widower Ian Stewart, whose wife had passed in 2010 and who had two grown adult sons of his own. The two began a relationship in October of 2011 and moved to Royston, which is a small rural town north of London and roughly one hour from the city centre. It has a population of 15,781 as of 2011. She had been living in the north of London with her husband John prior to that in the area of Highgate, which is considered one of the most expensive suburban areas to live in. I'm not sure exactly how Helen and Ian met, but it is detailed in her book, which I haven't had a chance to read. The two were married, but then, in 2016, their seemingly good marriage and idyllic life would quickly fall apart, revealing a sinister plot and ulterior motives that even an author couldn't make up. On April 11, 2016, 
Helen Bailey went missing with her husband, Ian Stewart, reporting her missing four days later on April 15th. The last time she was seen had been walking her beloved dog, and the two were now missing, the dog included. Initially, Ian stated a note was left saying she had gone to the family's country house, but it was soon discovered she was not there and had never been. In the months prior, Helen had been dealing with memory issues and extreme fatigue, so her disappearance was obviously concerning. Had she gotten confused and lost? Had she gone somewhere out of routine and been injured? Had she gotten in an accident on the way to the country house? Where could she be and her dog Boris? Her mother detailed numerous instances where Helen had called her in a panic about her failing memory, saying she even left her dog at the beach one day and Ian had to go back to retrieve him. Her mother stating, quote, She said that she had come away from the beach and gone home, and Ian had said he would go get the dog, but she was almost traumatized by that, repeating, You know, Mom, I never would have done that, end quote. This was something completely out of character for Helen, who had a great memory previously. She also called her mother one day, concerned she had a five-hour nap one day. Again, completely out of character for her. Even reaching up to the shelf would make her dizzy. Her mother remembering, quote, particularly when she was shopping and wanting to reach up from something from the shelf, she would fall to the floor. I suggested she went to the doctors, end quote. Combined, these events and her disappearance began to make police question exactly what was going on in Helen's life and if someone wasn't to blame for these changes in behavior. Those questions would be answered when, on July 11, 2016, just three months after she went missing, her husband Ian Stewart was arrested under suspicion of the murder of Helen Bailey. Sadly, Helen and Boris's remains were discovered in the secondary septic tank on the property of her own home during a search on July 15th. And Ian was subsequently charged with, quote, first-degree murder, perverting the course of justice, and preventing a lawful burial, end quote. Ian's trial took place in January of 2017. The prosecution presented evidence that Helen had been drugged with Zopiclone, a sleeping pill for months prior to being suffocated. It's also alleged she may have still been alive when she was put into the septic tank. He had also connected her phone to the Wi-Fi router at the country house he claimed she had went to just the day after he reported her missing, which was, quote, significant to the case and proves he tried to hide his crime. Her brother John also claims when he visited the home previously that Helen had joked the septic tank would be, quote, a good place to hide a body, end quote, and that Ian was an earshot when she had said that. It was also shown in court that Ian had tried to use his power of attorney to sell property belonging to Helen, 
one time being the very day she went missing and that he claimed she was too ill to attend. On that same day, Ian had also increased a standing money transfer from Helen's account to their joint account from £400 to £4,000. This evidence, combined with the fact that he was the sole beneficiary of Helen's roughly £3.4 million estate and a large life insurance policy, painted a pretty telling picture of a man that murdered his own wife for money. The jury agreed, and on February 22, 2017, Ian Stewart was found guilty and was subsequently sentenced to a minimum of 34 years in prison. Also mentioned at trial was the call that Ian placed to police to report Helen missing. In it, he couldn't remember her eye color, her date of birth, and even had to look up the address for the country home, meaning he didn't even know his own wife or care to know her, which is just heartbreaking. From the start of reading this case, I felt in my gut that Ian wasn't just a widower who found comfort in another widower post-grief. I felt that he had targeted Helen. Maybe not knowingly at first, but once he discovered her success and knew that she lived in this really expensive suburb in London, he set his sights on her. This theory was also presented at court, with the prosecution stating, quote, It is perfectly plain she was completely overwhelmed by what some people might call love bombing. It is a matter of common sense and knowledge that someone shortly bereaved might not have the logical equipment to see she was being deceived, end quote. For his defense, Ian claimed Helen had been kidnapped and held for ransom by two men named Nick and Joe and that he hadn't told police in order to keep her safe. He alleged he spoke to her on one of the men's phones for the last time on April 15th, after which he finally reported her missing. He even gave descriptions of the two men, but at trial, two men were brought in that had lived near even previously, which they alleged he based his descriptions on, both named Nick and Joe. Ian admitted knowing the men, but claims they don't match the descriptions that he gave, which prosecution argued they did. This just feels like such a desperate attempt to save himself. I mean, it would be pretty easy to see if a strange number called Ian when he claims they did, but also it's just so far-fetched. They kidnapped Helen, hold her somewhere, and try to get ransom but then end up killing her and putting her into a septic tank on her own property with her dog? Like, what killer would go back to the victim's home and take time to search for somewhere to hide the body? It's just unbelievable, and thankfully no one bought that made-up story. Ian, as it turns out, was a, quote, greedy narcissist and, quote, obsessed with money. He accounted for every penny he spent and was known to be cheap. 
He was also prone to fits of rage, according to friends who witnessed his, quote, volcanic rages on occasion. I'm not sure what his intentions were with the sleeping pills. Maybe he wanted it to appear Helen had been taking them and had an accident, but then in a fit of rage suffocated her on that day. It's unknown, but my heart just breaks for Helen. She had a wonderful life and a wonderful first husband. And during the worst time of her life, this monster preyed on her. But because of Helen, the prosecution began to ask questions about Ian's first wife, Diane. Diane Stewart had been in the garden of the couple's home in 2010 in Bassingbourne, I'm sorry, I'm not really sure how to say that, in Cambridgeshire, when it was claimed she had an epileptic episode and died. Ian claims he had gone to the store to purchase, quote, French bread and pâté, end quote, as the family was celebrating one of their sons getting his driver's license. During the emergency 999 call, Ian states Diane was, quote, crumpled on the floor and that, quote, my wife had a fit, she's in the garden, end quote. After Helen's death, the prosecution presented the theory that Ian had also suffocated Diane, likely a chokehold or plastic bag over her head, and that she was deceased prior to the 999 call. They used the fact that Diane had not had an epileptic seizure since 1992 as evidence, that it was just a made-up lie from Ian, and was not properly looked into because there wasn't reason to question it at the time. Although Diane had been cremated, which they now believe Ian did to hide evidence, he did consent to her brain being used for scientific purposes. And upon forensic testing, it showed her cause of death to be, quote, more likely caused by prolonged restriction to her breathing from an outside source. End quote. A friend of Diane also testified at the funeral. Ian's behavior was, quote, a little odd, adding, quote, he seemed totally unbothered and seemed quite aloof. I just didn't feel it was right, end quote. Ian inherited a total of about 100,000 pounds from Diane's estate and life insurance, after which he bought a sports car. He claimed the money was for his sons and that the car was one Diane and him had prior to his sons being born. But once again, the jury did not buy his story. He was formally charged in late 2020 and pled not guilty. Ten years after Diane's death, he was subsequently found guilty on February 9, 2022 and sentenced to life in prison with a whole life order, meaning he will never be released. His sons stated after trial, quote, We were privileged to have a wonderful, caring upbringing, and we were supported through all the activities and hobbies that we undertook. It's been really upsetting the last six years to have to recall the events of the toughest time of our life. 
We now look forward to recalling the many happy moments we had growing up as a family, end quote. Ian's greed and narcissism made him believe he was untouchable, but that was ultimately his downfall. The lives of Diane and Helen will live on in the hearts of their loved ones, and at least they can go on knowing that justice was served. But that is little consolation for the hole their presence has left. Thank you for listening to the story of Helen Bailey. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story. <laughs>